We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity, and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. So spoke abolitionist, poet, and activist Frances Ellen Watkins Harper in 1866. Her life had taken a new direction, and she seemed unafraid of speaking out. I'm Kalela Williams, and this is Finding Frances, a podcast exploring the life and work of 19th century Philadelphia luminary Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. This podcast grew out of the work of the Frances Suite, a new musical and poetic work celebrating Harper's art and activism, which will be performed live and online in May of 2022 with Intercultural Journeys. During this four-part podcast, we'll speak with scholars, activists, poets, archivists, and musicians as we seek to answer this question of monuments. By monuments, I do not mean those of stone or marble, but those of memory, of honor. How do we pay homage? The Civil War had had broken out. So she's living in Ohio. Uh, They have a farm uh, outside of Columbus. And... They had a child um, named Mary, and... um, I'm speaking with Dr. Melba Boyd, author of Discarded Legacy, Politics and Poetics in the Life of Frances E. W. Harper. We talked with Melba during our first episode, who shared that by 1860, Harper was a prolific poet and author. Frances had traveled extensively with the American Anti-Slavery Society, lecturing throughout the country... Her name was widely known. 1872, she actually had, there were more than 50,000 copies of her poetry in in print. You can't even imagine that. I mean, I, I, as a person who's, I've published several books, I can't even imagine that that number. But of course, people used to read. (laughs) So she's immensely popular, um, and she was considered the bronze muse of the abolitionist movement. But of course, once she gets married, she's, you know, in a domestic fear. Um, you know, however, her husband dies suddenly in 1864. But she's not married very long, sadly. And so uh, once again, she's um, by herself largely. And I call that in the book sort of this pattern of loss. You know, she was orphaned when she was, you know, not even three years old. And then she loses her husband after maybe three or four years of marriage. And she has a child herself. Um, but also it's, it's a very sort of um, more difficult situation because of certain laws. She could not inherit the property. I mean, this is how difficult life was for women and women of color. And so because uh, they had debts, um, You know, they basically seized the property and she was evicted and she was at that point, you know, without any support. So she leaves and goes to Philadelphia. About two years ago, I stood within the shadows of my home. A great sorrow had fallen upon my life. This is read by Nia Benjamin, Intercultural Journeys Programs and Communications Manager. Nia is also a theater and multimedia artist and this podcast's producer. They're giving voice to Harper's speech at the 11th National Women's Rights Convention in New York City in 1866. 
Francis's husband, Fenton Harper, had died in 1864. My husband had died suddenly, leaving me a widow with four children, one my own and the other stepchildren. I tried to keep my children together, but my husband had died in debt. And before he had been in his grave three months, the administrator had swept the very milk crocks and wash tubs from my hands. I was a farmer's wife and made butter for the Columbus market. But what could I do when they had swept all away? They left me one thing, and that was a looking glass. Had I died instead of my husband, how different would have been the result? By this time, he would have had another wife, it is likely, and no administrator would have gone into his house, broken up his home, and sold his bed and taken away his means of support. So this is interesting because she's addressing people who uh, people who were enslaved uh, in the South, for sure, could not legally marry. And elsewhere had no protections if they did. That's they exactly right. They didn't have right. the same legal protections that white couples had. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I'm in the reading room of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania with Justina Barrett, their Director of Education and Programs. We're sitting at a long table with ephemera and documents around us, images, old broadsides, and other materials. We're discussing Harper's 1892 address, Enlightened Motherhood. Here's a bit of what it says. It is nearly 30 years since an emancipated people stood on the threshold of a new era facing an uncertain future, a legally unmarried race to be taught the sacredness of marriage of the marriage relation and ignorant people to be taught to read the book of the Christian law and to learn to comprehend more fully the claims of the gospel of the Christ of Calvary. So when your marriage wasn't respected by the eyes of the law um, or or wasn't even considered um, in the eyes of the law, then she's speaking to this idea of now our marriages can be enshrined into law. At the same time Harper championed that formerly enslaved people could be legally married, she faced repercussions from her own marriage. I told Justina what happened to Harper in her widowhood. I shouldn't say destitute necessarily, but her property was seized. She lost everything. Her items, like her butter churn. Oh my gosh. Um, And and that was an experience for her that, you know, she felt like, Women need self to be self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency. Yeah. So that real lesson that a lot of activists went through, right, as they were young women, Mm -hmm. black and white, Mm -hmm. of like gaining space on the stage, fighting to be heard in their activism. And then do you give that up? You know, being told once you're married and have children, you know, your place now is to take care of that. And how do you negotiate that? That's exactly right. And that's something that gosh, have we escaped from, whether you're an activist, whether you have a career, you know, have we fully escaped from that? Yep. Is it unseemly for a married woman to be making speeches? Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, it was a resounding yes. Beyond Harper's personal life, society sees its own changes, too. I'm back with Dr. Melba Boyd, who's discussing this fraught time after the Civil War. So after the Civil War, um, there's certain laws and, um, shall we say, customs was created to control and repress, uh, you know, the black community. And, and so there are incidents where Harper, who uh, is a single mother, she's uh, a widow, um, and she's living alone and oftentimes um, traveling alone. And 
you know, she encounters these indignities, you know, like whole discrimination on streetcars and she's forced to move from the the um, front of the streetcar to this what they call the smoking car and and she protests this and she actually encounters this conflict and she talks about how Harriet Tubman actually got in a fight with the conductor and when uh, she literally had witnessed she said that their hands were all swollen and, and injured from this fight with the conductor so she continues though uh, in the struggle because one realizes is that the end of slavery is not the end of repression. In fact, uh, it begins to take another form. Let me go tomorrow morning and take my seat in one of your streetcars. I do not know that they will do it in New York, but they will in Philadelphia. And the conductor will put up his hand and stop the car rather than let me ride. Going from Washington to Baltimore this spring, they put me in the smoking car. I, in the capital of the nation where the black man consecrated himself to the nation's defense, faithful when the white man was faithless, they put me in the smoking car. They did it once, but the next time they tried it, they failed, for I would not go in. I felt the fight in me, but I do not want to have to fight all the time. During her 1866 convention speech, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper relayed the insidiousness of racism In Philadelphia, New York, and other cities, African-Americans were excluded entirely, constrained or severely discomforted on trains and on trolley cars. Sometimes they were victims of violence. So even in the North, Black people were second-class citizens. We probably collectively look at her life in two parts, before the Civil War and then after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily how she looked at it, right? I'm speaking once more with Dr. Uds McKnight, who we met in our first episode. He's the author of Francis E. W. Harper, A Call to Conscience. And he's talking not just about Harper's writing, but her sense of community. But after the Civil War, her that's her major novels, right? Right. Okay. So first, it's about what are the obligations that Black people have to their Black formerly enslaved people to try and create community, mm-hmm. right? That's the first text. The second text is, wait, there are real problems in our community in terms of focus. Please don't focus on the money. I mean, I'd say it like this, but certainly don't let alcohol and the fact that you don't have to work in a particular way. Don't, in other words, pay attention to what the obligations are to have the community progress mm-hmm. and build resources. And that's where the temperance idea comes in, right? And then the next book is about how should we, and actually, as I say this, I realize all of her books address the sort of displacement of youth in relation to family and what that might mean if you think about slave trading, mm-hmm. right? So in addition to sort of colorism and things like this and, and what it is to have intimate relationships as adults, she, every one of her books addresses the sort of child who's bereft who's had loss and then gained something. This, the trauma is described that way. As a matter of fact, in Iola Leroy, the youngest child dies from neglect, mm-hmm. right? The others, much more straightforward. All of them have, have the obligations. Community is defined through its obligations to its children. Now, if you think about her own life, right, and 13 being a servant, mm-hmm. maybe you have your answer, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you have your answer. but. 
her definition of community is one that we struggle with today. Mm-hmm. Like her description of community as being an obligation to your success leads to real obligations to others. Mm-hmm. And then placing that within a Christian faith, because that's what the, the public narrative was as well, like private and public for her, right? But today, we have gone the other way. I mean, I'm just without critiquing anybody, mm-hmm. right? We have gone the other way. We say like this, the black community's success is measured by my success. Mm. If I am, I mean, I'm going to be really stupid about it if it's okay. You know, uh, maybe I should be careful. But mm-hmm. if I'm Kanye, that mm-hmm. means black people have succeeded. Mm. And Frances Harper, there's no question. She would say, how did you make your money? And what are you doing with your money? Mm-hmm. And that is not, it is not about somebody being wealthy. It mm-hmm. is about the needs of the black community. And this is in the nadir of the black experience, mm-hmm. right? This is the clan is right there. Now, you and I understand this. Everything's very politicized right now because it was then too, mm-hmm. right? You and I understand that we have not progressed in terms of vulnerability to violence today, right? We have not progressed in terms of, you know, scratch the surface and you could be in trouble, right? Right. Socially, right? So that's not how we measure progress. So her argument would be the, the way to address the consolidation of the forces that subordinate black life. Mm-hmm. Be a little complicated about it. The way to address those forces, both by law during slavery and then afterwards by custom. Mm-hmm. Right, and then by law, the codes and all of this, and the clan. The way to address that is to change how we feel in our obligations to one another. It sounds cheesy now, and that's kind of sad, right? Like we admire somebody, the academic, right, the the podcast creative historian. You know, we admire one another. We go, ah, oh, we're so intellectual, we're so great. And right. she would say, Yeah, you are, but but you're great in your own sense of individual mm. perfection? Like, have you understood what a black life requires? And that a black life would require actually a really strong sense of community that we don't currently have. I don't, I don't actually think we have it. I think that's a, a radical egalitarianism that we, we avoid because we link it to different types of political movements. As Utz alluded to, Harper's work in political movements expanded to temperance, which was a movement that pushed for the complete abstinence from alcohol. Harper saw temperance as a way to curb the violence that women faced from their own husbands and partners. And Harper's efforts expanded to women's suffrage. And so she's lecturing, um, you know, throughout the South at this point. She's also helping to established schools in the South. She's also um, revealing in some of her lectures. I found it interesting when I was doing my work, some of the um, way that people want to conveniently ignore this. But there's one lecture where she's, she mentions, you know, about black men physically abusing their wives. And she says, you know, you got to stop doing this. This is not the community that we want to build. She's also encouraging black women to become, you know, financially independent. You need some skills. You ought to be able to handle your own business. 
And she's sort of a testament to that. Harper sat on the same platform with women's rights mainstays Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But in 1869, the movement split. Stanton and Anthony created the National Woman Suffrage Association, which prioritized the vote of women over that of Black men. But Harper was a member of the American Woman Suffrage Association, which supported Black male suffrage first. And she issued a direct challenge to white women. The big debate at the Equal Rights Amendment Conference, um, and this is the, the, the point at which she sides with uh, Frederick Douglass. And, and what she says is, she's, you know, the, the argument was it was going to be really hard to pass the 15th Amendment if they attach women's suffrage to it. And from what she says is that white women, your experience is not, you're not in danger. And she was trying to illuminate the fact that, you know, this is what's happening, you know, to black people. And this not happened to white women. And she says, so she says, I would not put one straw against black men getting a vote. In other words, we need some relief. And if we can't, if we don't have any political voice, how are we going to be able to protect our community? And so black men, if all we can get is black men at this point, we need to get the black men a vote. She also criticized the racism, you know, exemplified by white women. And how uh, many of them, you know, they just think and act like, you know, white men. She says there are women, she, she gives examples of in the North where white women refuse to, 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 to work alongside black women. And she's just like, no, we, we got to have some kind of political pull. We got to do something so that we can impact and deal with the way that they're enacting laws and all the, the actions of the Klan and and the community's in danger. And so it wasn't that she was making a decision on the basis that she felt that it was more important for black men to get the vote. She's like, we need, we need some help here. We've got to get some political, you know, uh, capital. And if it's just going to be black men, we got to go with that. Um, and white women and women are just going to have to wait. She's in the world. She's out there. She's, um, aware of and she's hearing um, and she's witnessing and experiencing, you know, this discrimination. Um, so it's, it's um, a decision that clearly she didn't make because in any way that she felt men were more important than women. But she was saying that basically your race had more to do with how you were treated in society. Uh, and that was far more dangerous for black women, being black was the, was the most crucial aspect. I do not believe that giving the woman the ballot is immediately going to cure all the ills of life. I do not believe that white women are dewdrops just exhaled from the skies. I think that like men, they may be divided into three classes, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. The good would vote according to their convictions and principles, the bad as dictated by prejudice or malice, and the indifferent will vote on the strongest side of the question, with the winning party. You white women here speak of rights. I speak of wrongs. Francis may have felt challenges from all sides. 
In her writing and through her speaking, she took Black men to task, too. Because she was a Black woman in the 19th century, and she knew when you don't have any economic um, power, that also affects, you know, your personal relationships as well as, you know, the societal circumstances that you're in. You have to fully understand that there uh, were very little systems in place to help, you know, black women. And then it was a, she recognized the problem of the patriarchy and she was against this, this idea of this model that was being also promoted at the time that, you know, she's engaged in the women's movement. And then of course the, the colored women's club movement in the 1890s with Ida B. Wells and, and other women of color and Julia Cooper. And they were like, no, 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 no. You know, you know, women have to have equal footing. And so she understood that the only way you could do that, or one of the main ways that you, you were able to do that, is that you had economic power, that you were bringing something to the table, which, of course, she found out, you know, tragically by her husband dying. She had to be able to take care of herself. Um, because ostensibly she was alone in the world. Um, and so her personal experiences um, really gave evidence to her, her politics. What I like about Frances Harper is she shows us that so long ago we were in it. Mm-hmm. We were in it. She was, one of the things to understand, I don't know how your other guests have spoken about this, is this was a formidable intellect and creative force, right? Frances Harper. Remember how she's doing things. She's speaking in public. She's reading her poems. She's encountering incredible hostility. She's redefining what it is to be a black woman in front of a a public. She is in the slave quarters, former slave quarters in the South after the Civil War, right? You know, mentoring and learning, right? Like finally retreats to Philadelphia because of her physical frailty after, you know, the sort of arduous struggle on behalf of things. Um, and she is, I don't know how people feel about poetry. I know a lot of poets, but this is somebody who published a lot of poetry, right? She wrote a lot of books. She was in newsletters and pamphlets, and then she gets to the national movement and she does all this stuff, right? Stuff. What would it have been like to meet her? I, what I worry about is I don't know if we have anybody like that now. I don't know if... You know, or put it this way, maybe we should see her as a singular individual. Mm. You know, like this is somebody who she's not. Who would it be? Um, I'd love to meet Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. I think Michelle probably be really smart. You know, intimidate me. I'd be like, oh. <laughs> like this, right? Yeah. Francis Harper is somebody who didn't even go to school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she would just tear us up. It's true. Although she was educated by her uncle, Harper never attended college. She had, as Dr. Melba Boyd put it in our first episode, the educational equivalence of a PhD, but much of her advanced academic scholarship was due to self-teaching. I asked Ruth Naomi Floyd, what is challenging about creating the Francis Suite and what is exciting about it? The challenge is Francis <laughs> in, in the most beautiful ways. Um, but it's it's a, a strong challenge. I want to get her right. I want to honor her work and her legacy. 
it, I have to get it right. And so uh, that's the challenge. I am excited that um, the profound gifts of artistry of Diane Monroe and Yolanda Wisher are part of it as, as Frances' voice. I'm excited about that. It's an all women of color ensemble um, honoring Francis, I'm deeply honored to, you know, compose a body of work that pays homage to Francis. Um, I'm thrilled this artistic presentation is taking place in Philadelphia, um, her adopted home. I am probably most excited that the work, Words and Legacy of, of Francis Ellen Watkins Harper will be presented uh, to communities who may um, not know who she is and that hopefully m more people will come to understand her and know of her and appreciate her. And there is that importance, right? You know, I'm thinking about Frederick Douglass, um, who, of course, Francis Ellen Watkins hardly yes. knew. Um, and Ida B. Wells, um, another voice that, that maybe we hear more of. But I had never heard of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper until I was in my 30s. <laughs> so why do you think that why do you think that we are still so late teaching her to people? And I can't even say children because I don't know that children learn about her. Um, but to people, why is it that um I've talked about erasure, you know, some other guests have called it erasure. Um would you call it erasure or would you just call it being unsung or a bit of both? I would call it erasure. I would say this, that historically in the black community, America has dictated that we can only have one or two and they must be against each other. We have to choose. We can't have Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. We cannot have Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. And so while white America has all these different choices and heroes, we are um, limited in our educational systems and institutions to one or two. They did not know what to do with Francis Harper. You look in the newspaper, they're always talking about how she looked, how the, the complexion of her skin. Oh, is she biracial? Or she's, she stands, has good posture. They're always um, reducing her um, in many ways. And I, it is black eraser, but I think also history does not know what to do with Frances. When she's able to stand and call white women who she is working with on the carpet, where she's able to say, this is what's needed for us to progress. White women, you need to get yourselves together. That, to me, feels like, I don't want to say a reason for erasure, but I could see how that could be frightening to some people. Um, this person who's on the stage, within the movement, together, it's supposed to be together, but of course, we know that the women's movement splits <laughs> for these very reasons. But um, but who's willing to say to to like you said to say white women get it together? <laughs> what do you do with a person like that? I've considered my own question over and over again, and I don't know that I have an answer. During this series, we'll continue to explore the question of what do you do with a person like her? 
How can we best honor Frances Ellen Watkins Harper's legacy? For now, here's Nia again reading Harper's 1866 speech, We Are All Bound Up Together. I feel I am something of a novice upon this platform, born of a race whose inheritance has been outrage and wrong, most of my life had been spent in battling against those wrongs. But I did not feel as keenly as others that I had these rights in common with other women, which are now demanded. About two years ago, I stood within the shadows of my home. A great sorrow had fallen upon my life. My husband had died suddenly, leaving me a widow with four children, one my own and the other stepchildren. I tried to keep my children together, but my husband had died in debt. And before he had been in his grave three months, the administrator had swept the very milk crocks and wash tubs from my hands. I was a farmer's wife and made butter for the Columbus market. But what could I do when they had swept all away? They left me one thing, and that was a looking glass. Had I died instead of my husband, how different would have been the result? By this time, he would have had another wife, it is likely. And no administrator would have gone into his house, broken up his home, and sold his bed and taken away his means of support. I took my children in my arms and went out to seek my living. While I was gone, a neighbor to whom I had once lent five dollars went before a magistrate and swore that he believed I was a non-resident and laid an attachment on my very bed. And I went back to Ohio with my orphan children in my arms, without a single feather bed in this wide world that was not in the custody of the law. I say then that justice is not fulfilled so long as woman is unequal before the law. We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. You tried that in the case of the Negro. You pressed him down for two centuries, and in so doing you crippled the moral strength and paralyzed the spiritual energies of the white men of the country. When the hands of the black were fettered, white men were deprived of the liberty of speech and the freedom of the press. Society cannot afford to neglect the enlightenment of any class of its members. At the South, the legislation of the country was in behalf of the rich slaveholders, while the poor white man was neglected. What is the consequence today? From that very class of neglected poor white men comes the man who stands today with his hand upon the helm of the nation. He fails to catch the watchword of the hour and throws himself, the incarnation of meanness, across the pathway of the nation. My objection to Andrew Johnson is not that he has been a poor white man. My objection is that he keeps poor wits all the way through. That is the trouble with him. This grand and glorious revolution which has commenced will fail to reach its climax of success until throughout the length and breadth of the American Republic, this nation shall be so colorblind as to know no man by the color of his skin or the curl of his hair. 
It will then have no privileged class trampling upon and outraging the unprivileged classes, but will then be one great privileged nation, whose privilege will be to produce the loftiest manhood and womanhood that humanity can attain. I do not believe that giving the woman the ballot is immediately going to cure all the ills of life. I do not believe that white women are dewdrops just exhaled from the skies. I think that like men, they may be divided into three classes, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. The good would vote according to their convictions and principles, the bad as dictated by prejudice or malice, and the indifferent will vote on the strongest side of the question, with the winning party. You white women here speak of rights. I speak of wrongs. I, as a colored woman, have had in this country an education which has made me feel as if I were in the situation of Ishmael, my hand against every man and every man's hand against me. Let me go tomorrow morning and take my seat in one of your streetcars. I do not know that they will do it in New York, but they will in Philadelphia, and the conductor will put up his hand and stop the car rather than let me ride. Going from Washington to Baltimore this spring, they put me in the smoking car. I, in the capital of the nation where the black man consecrated himself to the nation's defense, faithful when the white man was faithless, they put me in the smoking car. They did it once, but the next time they tried it, they failed, for I would not go in. I felt the fight in me, but I do not want to have to fight all the time. Today I am puzzled where to make my home. I would like to make it in Philadelphia near my own friends and relations. But if I want to ride in the streets of Philadelphia, they send me to ride on the platform with the driver. Have women nothing to do with this? Not long since a colored woman took her seat in an 11th street car in Philadelphia and the conductor stopped the car and told the rest of the passengers to get out and left the car with her in it alone when they took it back to the station. One day I took my seat in a car and the conductor came to me and told me to take another seat. I just screamed murder. The man said if I was black, I ought to behave myself. I knew that if he was white, he was not behaving himself. Are there not wrongs to be righted? In advocating the cause of the colored man, since the Dred Scott decision, I have sometimes said I thought the nation had touched bottom. But let me tell you, there is a depth of infamy lower than that. It is when the nation, standing upon the threshold of a great peril, reached out its hands to a feebler race and asked the race to help it. And when the peril was over said, you are good enough for soldiers, but not good enough for citizens. We have a woman in our country who has received the name of Moses, not by lying about it, but by acting it out. A woman who has gone down into the Egypt of slavery and brought out hundreds of our people into liberty. The last time I saw that woman, her hands were swollen. That woman who had led one of Montgomery's most successful expeditions, who was brave enough and secretive enough to act as a scout for the American army had her hands all swollen from a conflict with a brutal conductor who undertook to eject her from her place. 
That woman, whose courage and bravery won a recognition from our army and from every black man in the land, is excluded from every thoroughfare of travel. Talk of giving women the ballot box? Go on. It is a normal school, and the white women of this country need it. While there exists this brutal element in society which tramples upon the feeble and treads down the weak, I tell you that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white women of America. I'm Kaleli Williams, and this podcast was produced by the staff of Intercultural Journeys. Nia Benjamin, Marla Burkholder, and Carly Rappaport-Stein, and audio engineers Jeremy Rappaport-Stein and Mobe Lola Irizari. The Francis Suite is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support comes from the Presser Foundation, the Musical Fund Society, and Fleischer Art Memorial. Funding for the public programs associated with the Francis Suite, including this podcast, has been provided by Spring Point Partners, Pennsylvania Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021.